A few years ago, uh, there was an article published in The Atlantic. And the article compiled several historians and cultural commentators and pop culture figures. And they asked them to answer this question. What day most changed the course of history? So in your opinion, what day most changed the course of history in Ken Burns? The documentary filmmaker, perhaps you've seen his documentaries on jazz or the Civil War or New York or baseball. That was a good one. He said that the day that most changed the course of history was June 28, 1914. That was a day when Franz Ferdinand's carriage driver took a wrong turn and they ended up in a cul-de-sac giving the Serbian nationalist Gavrilo Princip a chance to kill the Archduke. This was the first in a set of dominoes that put in motion the two largest wars in world history. And it all came down to a wrong turn by a carriage driver. Fascinating. Oliver Stone, the film director of such movies as Platoon and Born on the Fourth of July and Any Given Sunday or the political uh, JFK, I think he did the W movie, he says that the, most, the day that most changed the course of history was July 20th, 1944, when Henry Wallace lost the vice presidential nomination at the Democratic National Convention in Chicago. Had Wallace won, he, not Harry S. Truman, would have become president when Roosevelt died. The U.S. would have probably had a much better relationship with the Soviet Union, and I don't think Wallace would have dropped the atomic bomb on Japan. Fascinating. W. Kamau Bell, the stand-up comedian and host of the United Shades of America, says, you know, there's no way I can get this correct. So, it has to be something that has affected me personally. It has to have had a big, big impact on America, both culturally and historically, and it has to have involved sequins. He says, therefore, the obvious answer is May 16, 1983, when Michael Jackson first performed the moonwalk on TV. He says, I think it's one of the reasons we have a black president today. People went, wow, black people are sort of magical. And Barack Obama is basically a walking sequin. Now, W. Kamau Bell said that. I have no way of interpreting what that means. <laughs> Other contributors said that the day that most changed the course of history was the invention of the microscope, the invention of the Gutenberg's printing press, the invention of the steam engine, or the day that women, that women gained the right to vote in America. And I would not disagree that all of these days are very important days in world history. But Gardner C. Taylor, the former pastor of Concord Baptist Church in Bed-Stuy here in Brooklyn, one of the greatest preachers to ever live, they, they used to call him the Dean of American Preaching. He says, we Christian people have one day that altered our world. A day that shook the world from center to circumference. And it will affect events until time falls exhausted at the feet of eternity. This day altered the direction of history. It arrested the drift of time and turned around the sequence of occurrence. He says this day was a Friday on a hill shaped like a skull. Gardner Taylor was referring to the execution of Jesus of Nazareth or simply known as the cross. The day when everything changed. The Apostle Paul calls the cross of Jesus the thing that is of most importance. John Stott, the great theologian, says the greatest and most glorious of all subjects 
is the cross of Christ. And we are in a teaching series simply titled Knowing Jesus. Because one of the central values of our church, or the central value of our church, is that we want to be a church that is Christ-centered, Christ-saturated. We want the work, the person, the power of Jesus to transform and saturate everything we do at Crossroads. And if Christ is going to be central, then the cross of Christ must be central as well. In fact, it's our logo. Our logo is a cross. And a lot of ink has been spilled by theologians and writers, and a lot of vocal cords have been stretched and strained by preachers trying to explain the cross of Jesus. And there's no way that I could plumb the depths of the cross of Christ in an entire life of ministry, much less one sermon today. But today what I want to do is I want us to fix our gaze on what I believe to be the most important moment in world history, the day that forever changed the past, present, and future, and that is the cross of Jesus. And I want to structure this sermon by highlighting what I think are probably the two most common and most beautiful views of the cross. And I want to take these views and I want to show you how they teach us about the beauty and the power of the cross, how the cross shapes us, how the cross transforms our lives and gives us victory and power. And there are five or six basic popular theories of the atonement or popular understandings of the cross. And I wanted to do all five of them, five or six of them, but I only finished two in my notes. And I thought, you know what, that's enough for one day. So we're doing two. But a lot of theologians, if you read theology books, they'll often say this is the view that you must accept or this is the right view. But I've always been of the impression that the cross is so big and so enormous and so multifaceted that one sort of theory and one sort of view and one way of explaining it is not enough to capture all that happened on that day. And so I would say that while there are some views of the cross and some views of the atonement that have more weight than others and that may be more important than others, I would say that all views of the atonement and all views of the cross are valid in that they help us see a different aspect of what happened on that day. And I want to show you two views today. I want to show you one theory called penal substitutionary atonement and one view called Christus Victor. Now don't get bored with those words just yet. The first is penal substitution or penalty substitution. Of all the ways that we understand the cross, I think this is the most important in that without it, the other views become empty. Penal substitution, I would say, is the heart of the cross. And it can be described like this. And this is one of our texts for today. 2 Corinthians 5.21 The Apostle Paul says, For our sake, God made Him to be sin who knew no sin. For our sake, God made the One who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So in other words... Penal substitution is that Jesus took our place on the cross. The penalty for our sin, which is death, Jesus took it upon Himself and gave us His reward for His perfect life. He traded places with us. And when you read the whole narrative of the Bible, you find this theme that comes up over and over and over and over again. And it's the theme of substitution. The theme of someone or something taking the place of a guilty person so that that person can experience forgiveness and the fullness of life. Think when Adam and Eve were in the garden 
Remember, they were walking with God. They were experiencing the fullness of creation. And they were naked. It says they were naked in the garden. But when they sinned, when they rebelled against God and sin entered the world, they became aware of their nakedness. They felt exposed. They felt vulnerable. And they felt ashamed. And God, in His grace, He covered them with clothing. Now, how does that happen? Leather doesn't grow on trees, right? An animal had to be slain so that their shame could be covered. An innocent animal had to die so that they could be covered in their shame. And as the Old Testament progresses, you begin to see this idea of a substitutionary blood sacrifice come into play. Where for people to atone for their sins, they would take an innocent animal, most often a lamb, which is like the cutest, most cuddly, like most innocent and harmless animal you can think of. People would take a lamb and they would figuratively sort of transfer their sins onto the lamb before they would then slit the throat of the land and watch the blood pour out into the street. And I don't want to be too grotesque today, but the cross is grotesque. And if you've seen any YouTube videos of the Day of Atonement in Jerusalem, you'll see people that they, would, they'll, they still do this to this day, where they will put their, place their sins upon an innocent lamb, and multiple people will do this with multiple lands. They will slit their throats. And there are videos on YouTube of the streets of Jerusalem literally ankle deep in the blood of innocent lambs. An innocent lamb takes on our sins and dies in the people's place. See, then when Jesus comes onto the scene in the Gospels, Jesus begins healing people, forgiving them, covering their shame. And maybe you've never thought of it this way, but in almost every single one of the healing miracles of Jesus, someone gets His power and He gets their shame. So think of... In Mark chapter 5, one of my favorite stories, I think I talk about it like every month. I've preached on it before. But in Mark chapter 5, there's a demon-possessed man, a man that's possessed by thousands of demons. And Jesus walks into the graveyard where he's living. And no one wanted this man in their presence. He was living in a graveyard. He was unclean. And he was cast out in the tombs. He was cast out to where nobody wanted him. He was as outcast as one could be. It said he was crazy and he was locked in chains. But Jesus enters into the graveyard, enters into the presence of this man who nobody else would come close to. Jesus heals him. This man becomes clean. He becomes healthy. He becomes no longer unhinged. And what happens? The people approach this formerly demon-possessed man that they never wanted anything to do with. They approached him in amazement. But what did they do to Jesus? They told him to get out of town. So this man who is an outcast, Jesus comes in, enters his pain, he becomes a part of the community and Jesus gets cast out. See, Jesus healed him and Jesus became an outcast so that an outcast could be a part of community. Jesus took his place. Lepers, sick people, sinners, drunkards, prostitutes, pimps, and tax collectors, all throughout the New Testament, they were outcasts. They were banned from the community. They were not allowed to be a part of society. They were banned from experiencing experiencing the joys of life, yet Jesus embraced them, He hugged them, He saw them, He ate with them, and He touched them. And when He did this, they would become whole, their sickness would leave them, and Jesus would be further pushed to the margins. Every time Jesus would hang around a sinner or a leper, they would be healed, but people would say, look at Jesus hanging out with the tax collectors and the sinners. He's a drunkard and He's a glutton. He has no business hanging out with us. Or look at that. He touched a leper. He's unclean. He's got to go. But then the leper's walking healed. 
When Lazarus died, Jesus' friend Lazarus, who died, Jesus went and raised him from the dead. And if you read the text in the Gospel of John of Lazarus being raised from the dead, you find out that the moment that Lazarus walked out of a tomb, walked out of that empty tomb, the Pharisees, the scribes, and the religious leaders at that exact moment is when they, it spooked them. Like a dude was dead and he was alive. It spooked the religious leaders. And at that exact moment, they said, it's time to kill Jesus. And the plot to crucify Jesus began the moment that Lazarus was raised from the dead. See, Jesus knew that. And when he knew that by giving Lazarus his life back meant that he was going to have to lay his down for Lazarus. Jesus took Lazarus' place. See, this is the cross. Romans 3.23 says that all of us, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23 says that the wages of our sin is death. See, Jesus took the punishment we deserved, meaning death. Jesus took God's wrath towards sin. And He poured it out into Himself in Jesus so that we could be free from the penalty of sin. Penal substitutionary atonement. Jesus took our place and traded us His. See, the wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. Jesus took that. But the gift of God is eternal life. He gives that to us. Robert Smith says it wasn't two, but three thieves who died on Calvary. The one in the middle also took something that didn't belong to him. He took my sin. Talk back to me, church. That's a good quote. And this understanding of the cross, penal substitutionary atonement, it's fallen out of favor with many streams of Christians today. People say it presents God as bloodthirsty. Why would God kill His Son? Someone have to die. Blood? Why? If God is love, why can't He just forgive with all that, without all the bloodshed, people ask. But I'm reminded of what Anselm of Canterbury once said. He said, perhaps you have not yet considered just how heavy the weight of your sin truly is. Flannery O'Connor, the great novelist, says what people don't realize is how much religion costs. They think of it as a big electric blanket, when of course it is a cross. C.S. Lewis says it costs God nothing, so far as we know, to create nice things. But to convert rebellious wills costs Him crucifixion. So you cannot have true love without substitutionary sacrifice. People ask why we need the concept of substitutionary sacrifice. Why can't we just say God is loving and say without, and He can forgive us without all the need for the bloodshed, without having to sacrifice His Son? Tim Keller, who pastors here in New York City, in Manhattan, he says, you have never loved a broken person, you have never loved a guilty person, and you have never loved a hurting person except through substitutionary sacrifice. All love, all real life-changing love is substitutionary sacrifice. Jesus couldn't forgive us without substituting Himself for us because Jesus couldn't love us without substituting Himself for us. And you say, I don't understand. Listen, there's no way to love an emotionally vulnerable or an emotionally broken person and fully remain intact yourself. Many of you know this, who've cared for someone who maybe has Alzheimer's, maybe a parent, or maybe you've cared for someone who mentally isn't all there, or maybe somebody who's just very needy. You know that if you truly engage with someone who is emotionally vulnerable or broken, you are going to suffer some measure of emotional vulnerability and brokenness just by getting close to them. 
It's them or you. If you stay afloat, they will sink. And if you are there to help them stay afloat, then you will have to let yourself sink a little bit as well. Or think of it this way. If you were to offer sanctuary to a fugitive who's being pursued by authorities, you cannot give a fugitive safety and security without losing some safety and security of your own. Again, it's them or you. Imagine German citizens who hid Jews in Nazi Germany in their homes. They were giving up their safety and security so that other people could live. That's love. True love requires you to sacrifice yourself. Many of you who are parents understand this. When you raise children, if you push your children away and keep your children at arm's length in order to preserve your freedom and autonomy, your kids will grow up emotionally dependent and probably damaged. See, the only way our children can grow up with freedom and independence is if we sacrifice our independence and freedom for years and years and years on end. Once again, it's them or us. It's them or you. There is no true love without substitutionary sacrifice. And so in order to save us, in order to rescue us, it took a cross. Because whether you realize it or not, your sin deserves an execution. But Jesus gladly took it for you. And when you realize this, church, the cross will become so beautiful to you, so meaningful that it will radically change your life. Octavius Winslow said, Christ took your cup of grief, your cup of the curse. He pressed it to His lips. He drank it to the dregs and then filled it with His sweet, pardoning, sympathizing love and gave it back to you to drink forever. Jesus drank our sin and poured His righteousness in our cup and gave it to us. Your sins have been forgiven through the cross. Your eternity has been made secure. Your identity has been changed from sinner to saint. You have been made holy and righteous in God's sight because Jesus took your place. Penal substitutionary atonement. Penalty substitutionary atonement. Jesus substituted Himself to pay the penalty of your sin. Let me hear an amen. Amen. Now we'll move on. Second view that I want to look at today is Christus Victor. And yes, I'm speaking Latin today and using big theological terms like penal substitutionary atonement. But listen, if you can learn the language necessary to place an order at Starbucks, you can learn theological language as well. Okay? I'll have the non-fat, soy, half-calf, unicorn, maki, latte, cano with no sprinkles. But double the caramel, foam, not milk. I want it 111 degrees, but make that a venti. Oh, and don't give me one of those red cups that keeps Christ out of Christmas, right? Christus Victor. It's a Latin phrase, and it means Christ the victor. The power of the cross. If penal substitutionary atonement is the heart of the cross, Christus Victor is the power of the cross. The victory of the cross. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses, listen to this church, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all of its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. And He disarmed the rulers and authorities. And I love this. He put them to open shame. 
by triumphing over them in Him. This passage teaches that Jesus on the cross doesn't barely win. He runs up the score. Cavalier style. He cancels the record of our sin debt. He nails it to the cross. Then He disarms the rulers and authorities, puts them to shame, and triumphs over them. And rulers and authorities is not referring to Pontius Pilate or Caiaphas or the religious leaders of Jesus' day. The Apostle Paul is talking about the rulers and authorities of sin, sickness, shame, hell, and the devil himself. And I know this makes people weird. Talking about the devil. Talking about Satan. But our theology must have an explanation for evil and sin in this world. The Bible teaches that Satan is a real spiritual being and is the author of evil. And I heard one teacher say that if you don't have room in your theology for a Satan, you will make other people Satan. Political or philosophical opposition will become the origin of evil in your worldview. And you will look at other people who are different than you or people that think different from you as your enemies to be destroyed rather than than people to be loved. But the Scriptures teach that we don't wrestle against each other. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, listen to this, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil. Our enemies are sin, shame, hell, and Satan. But those enemies were defeated on the cross. They were triumphed over. Jesus put them to open shame. In Genesis 3.15, after Satan had tempted Adam and Eve to sin and caused them to be separated from the holiness of God, God gave a warning to Satan. He said, you may have won this time. You may have tempted my creation to rebel against me. But there is coming a day where I will send my son. And and God says to him, he says, you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. And that is the first mention of the cross in the Bible. Chapter 3, that's like the second page. The cross is mentioned early on in the Scriptures. God says that Satan will bruise Jesus' heel, meaning a nail through the foot. But Jesus will crush his head. And Satan will take his best shot, but it will be futile in the presence of Jesus. Did you guys see Isaiah Thomas try to block LeBron James the other night? (laughs) Isaiah Thomas is 5'9". LeBron James is a monster at 6'8", 250 pounds. It was a good effort, and it was cute, but it did not end well for Isaiah Thomas. See, the cross was Satan's effort at destroying Jesus, but it was futile. Jesus conquered him. I want you to look at this picture. This is a painting done by the artist Christopher Powers, who has a website uh, called Full of Eyes. And it shows us what happened at the cross. Satan took his best shot at Jesus' heel, but Jesus dealt the final death blow. Now the next two stories I'm about to tell illustrate this point of Christus Victor. I took them from a sermon from one of my pastor peers here in the city, a guy by the name of John Tyson. And I'm using both of these stories because I think they both capture the reality of Christ trampling over Satan on the cross. The first is this. After World War II, the Allied forces decided and decreed that they would bring the Nazis to justice. And so America and our allies, we decided to hunt down these men who have committed these atrocities of war, hunt them down, put them on trial, and bring them to justice. And these trials were known as the Nuremberg Trials. 
And after the war, the, we brought, uh, the Allied forces gathered all these high-ranking Nazis that were responsible for the atrocities of the Holocaust, the ones that didn't commit suicide or die during battle, brought them together before an international tribunal, an international jury, and these men who were once so powerful and so cocky and so arrogant and so evil, these men who once exercised so much might over the people they oppressed, look at this picture, <laughs> are rendered weak and powerless. They're on trial for their life. They're crying with their faces in their palms. They have been beaten. And these men who were once so powerful, when their power was stripped away, they were exposed as the weak and cowardly beings that they are. They were disarmed and they were shameful. This is what happened to Satan, sin, and hell on the cross. His power, the guilt He lays upon you, the fear He uses to poke at your heart, that has been defeated at the cross. When we think of the enemy, we ought to think of someone who has been triumphed over. He is weak and he has no power. That means that if the enemy is going to work in your life, it will be, through psycho it will be psychological. He has no power over you. But what he will do is he'll use fear and lies and guilt and shame. He will try to lie to you and convince you to destroy yourself. This is why you must every day, every hour of the day, preach the gospel to yourself and announce the verdict of the cross over your life over and over and over again. Your sin has been paid for. You are no longer guilty. Your shame has been lifted. You are no longer naked. You are no longer exposed. You are a beloved child of God. And when you feel the enemy speaking and lying to you, telling you that you are unworthy, you can look him in the face and remind him that he is weak, he is impotent, and he has nothing on you. You say, sorry, that's not true of me. The old person died. My shame was nailed to the cross and you were disarmed. I have been resurrected with Christ. You have been publicly shamed and you have no authority over me. This is what happened on the cross. Another story in ancient Rome, Caesar would often call for things called a triumph parade. This is when Rome would conquer an enemy, uh, when they would conquer another nation, they would capture the general of the opposing army, they would put them on a cart, they would bring them to Rome, and they would parade them through the city in defeat, and the people would shout, Roma victor, Roma victor. The people would shout at this general, they would spit on him, mock him, humiliate him, throw things at him, slap him in the face, pull on his beard. And he would be paraded through the city like that, humiliated. And then the procession would end in front of Caesar, who would be sitting on a throne, who would be dressed like a Roman god. And just think about it, this general would be far from home. In a foreign land, he's been a public failure, he's a disgrace. Most of his friends and family have probably been brutally murdered. And he's standing before the man who conquered him. And then Caesar would rise and would announce that he would be executed and the man would be executed right in front of Caesar and then Caesar would call the, the audience to rise. They would stand and Caesar would receive the applause. Roma Victor, Roma Victor. This is what Jesus has done to the enemy. Christ the Victor, Christ the Victor. 
The one who tempts you, the one who tells you lies about yourself, the one who draws you into addictions and self-loathing has been conquered on the cross. He has been dragged before the throne of God and is awaiting His final execution. And we are shouting, Christus Victor! Christus Victor! Jesus is victorious. Our tormentor is embarrassed. This is the cross. And here's what this means for you. Do you struggle Sex addiction, substance addiction, family issues, insecurities, your past, lies of worthlessness, body image issues, fear, anxiety, depression, loneliness, pride. Are you a slave to these things? These are of the enemy. And because of the cross, the righteousness of Christ has been given to you and it can change you and become more real in your life than all the sins and all the struggles and the lies. And instead of being drug around on a leash by your sins and your failures and your shame, you can have control over these things by the power of the Holy Spirit because that thing has been defeated by the finished work of Jesus on the cross. This is good. Listen to this. 2 Corinthians 2.14 But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in a triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of His knowledge of Him everywhere. And if you feel like you need help in allowing this truth to become a reality in your life, this truth of the enemy being defeated, sin and sickness and shame and hell, and Satan being defeated on the cross, if you have trouble really applying that to your life and walking in victory in these areas of temptation in your life, I would encourage you to join our Celebrate Recovery ministry. Monday nights at 7.30 at our office, 6921 4th Avenue. The whole purpose of this cross looks at Christus Victor every week and says that has been destroyed in your life. Look to the cross and walk in freedom. And it's a group of people who will walk with you So that you can have victory and power over your sin and your shame by looking to the power of the cross. Now I want to close again with words from Gardner C. Taylor. And I want you to just listen to them as they're spoken over you. He says, as a boy, I could not read the account of our Lord's death without tears coming to my eyes. And I still cannot. For I know in some way I have never been able to explain that he took a lick that was meant for me. I know that where our slates were all blotched and marred, He wiped them clean. And I know that He got under a load that I alone was meant to carry, and that that where the charges stood against me, He cleared them. If in Eden I see a tree forbidden, at Calvary I see a tree forgiving. But in some way deeper than I can ever say, He made it all right with my soul. He manumitted the slave's bondage, brought the exile back into his native land, put the orphan at the father's table, and called him or her a child, an heir. I know that at Calvary, that greatest day, my condition was forever altered and changed. I am now a child of the royal house. The wonderful, wonderful cross of Jesus. This is the day that changed the course of history. And it would be pastorally irresponsible for me to not say this though. See, the cross of Jesus takes our sin away. It gives us Jesus' righteousness. And it breaks the chains of bondage in our life. But you must receive it as a gift. You must confess that you need the cross. See, Christ died for all. 
But the ones who receive it are the ones that experience the power. Many people continue in life thinking that they don't need their sins forgiven, that they're just fine on their own. Many people tell themselves that they can defeat their own demons, their own enemies in their own time, in their own way, in their own strength. They see no need for a cross. And although the gift of Jesus has been extended to them, they don't receive it, so they miss out on its benefits. And so I ask you today, do you want the forgiveness and the power of the cross of Jesus today? Have you received it? And it's simple to receive. The Scriptures say, confess your need for Christ and He is faithful and just to cleanse you of your sins and forgive you of your sins and cleanse you and give you righteousness. But you must first confess. And if you need to receive the gift of the cross for the first time, I'm going to stand here during our communion time and I'm here to pray with you if you want to know what this looks like. And I'm here to help lead you into the way of the cross and receive the grace of Jesus. And after I pray, I want all of us to stand and come to this altar and take the body of Christ that was broken for you, the bread, and the blood of Christ that was poured out for you, the cup. And for others of you, if you would come and you would bring your shame, bring your guilt, bring your fears, bring your worries, and bring your insecurities, lay them on this table, figuratively speaking. And take the cup and the bread in their place and drink of the cross of Jesus and receive its benefits. Jesus has took your place and has defeated your enemies. And then you go back to your seat. And then in a, minute, in a moment, Seja and the band are going to come up and we're going to sing in Christ alone. And you sing it as loud as you can with all of your heart. So let's pray and let's worship Christ alone. Father, thank You for sending Your Son. Thank You for taking on flesh and coming to earth and living a perfect life. A life deserving of glory and honor, but instead of reveling in Your glory, God, You laid it down. You took on the penalty of our sin and our shame. You laid it on Your back. You carried it up the hill. And You were nailed with it to the cross. May we look to Your cross, Jesus, when we doubt Your compassion. May we look to Your cross, Jesus, when we doubt Your love for us. When we are tempted to sin, may we look to the cross. When the enemy tells lies about who we are, God, may we look to the cross. When we feel trapped and entangled in addiction, may we look to the cross. And God, may we never take small glances at the cross while fixing our gaze on the things of the world. God, help us fix our eyes on You. It was on the cross where your love was demonstrated. It was on the cross where you bore the punishment for our sins and made way to give us new life. The Lamb of God in our place. Your blood poured out. My sin erased. It was my death you died. Now I am raised to life. Hallelujah. The Lamb of God. Thank you, Jesus. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. My sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. My sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow.
In the powerful and gracious name above all names. The name of Jesus we pray. Amen. If you'd come and take the body and the blood this morning.